you'll hear an interview with Dr. Barry Smith and Professor Tim Crane. I began by asking Barry Smith of Birkbeck College London to outline the central elements of what has come to be known as the Gricean programme. Well, what philosophers mean by the Gricean programme now is usually the idea that we're trying to explain the meaning of linguistic utterances in terms of the contents of our mental states and rather complicated audience-directed intentions and beliefs we have about what people will understand by what we say and what we do. Now, Grice himself had a rather larger understanding of the programme, his own programme. He wanted to explain what people mean on an occasion when they use words to convey something to one another. He wanted a specific account of that occasion meaning in terms of beliefs and intentions of the speaker. But he also then wanted to move from there to explain how words and sentences could come to have meanings that endured from occasion to occasion. He wanted them to have an account of the timeless meaning, as it were, of words and sentences. Can I ask why anybody would want to understand the relationship between psychological content and the meaning of an utterance on an occasion and the meaning of words in this kind of hierarchical way? I think it's an intuitive thought that being creatures with minds, having mental states in which we think about ourselves and the world and things around us, we already have thoughts that are about something. Now, when we use words and sentences, when we go in for linguistic communication, we seem to be using these noises, perhaps rather at first artificially, to convey something to one another. Eventually, of course, the noises come to carry the meanings and significances they have for us in a very well understood, rather regular way. But Grice wanted to see that linguistic communication, using the sounds and noises I'm using now, is to be explained in terms of a much wider notion of communication. Communication that's natural between thinkers with minds, who are also agents acting in the world and acting on one another. So when I want to communicate with you, I don't have to use these sounds, these noises. There's a lot of non-linguistic communication, like waving my hand, signalling to you by a gesture. And of course, animals engage in a great deal of communication which we wouldn't think was linguistic. The thought is, if we can explain the specific linguistic communication in terms of this more general form of directed mental activity and attempts to influence the minds of one another, then perhaps language won't seem so special and mysterious. The claim that language is um, just one form of communication resonates with Grice's use of the word utterance in, I suppose, a slightly strange-sounding way to mean not merely linguistic utterances, utterances performed using words, but uh, any meaningful act. Um, is, is there a connection there? Yes, I mean, I think Grice uses this word utterance, and by that he means a gesture, something we do, an act, as well as what you're hearing now, my actually uttering recognisable words and sentences of English. And Grice thinks that uh, instead of trying to figure out what people are up to or intend when they communicate by starting with a linguistic utterance and saying, well, what does it mean? That must tell me what somebody intends or what they're trying to say. It's rather that 
the notion of a linguistic utterance is just a specific refinement of this more general sense of doing something, behaving in a way to convey significance to another being, another minded creature. And therefore, utterance is going to cover, as I say, gestures, it's going to cover noises that are not specifically linguistic, various ways in which we can attract one another's attention with the idea of getting something across. Let me express the Gricean view in a very sort of flat-footed way and raise an objection to that way of putting it and then ask you whether that's a misrepresentation or whether he's got some kind of response. Here's the flat-footed version of what Grice is trying to do. He doesn't think that what our utterances mean comes from the words that we're using, where this is somehow independent of our psychological states. Rather, he thinks that what our utterances mean comes from within. So the objection to that view, if it is Grice's view, is that, well, it seems obvious that what we mean depends on our words, not on some kind of hidden interior psychological state our intentions. Is that a fair representation of Grice and a fair criticism? Well, this is, I think, where Grice really has something to say to defuse that criticism. It's as if Grice is going to reverse the order of explanation. He's going to say, of course, of course, we recognize what other people are thinking by what they tell us. And by using the words they do, they tell us a lot about what they think. They tell us about what is going on around them. They convey new information to us about the world. But how did those sounds that they use come to get their meaning in the first place? How did these noises have this easy association with what is going on inside someone else's mind? And Grice thinks that if we can explain philosophically and satisfactorily how a one-off occasion comes to have a significance that both speaker and perhaps hearer can pick up, a regular repertoire of such utterances laid down among a community of speakers will put in place a regularity of making those utterances convey certain meanings between minds. And I think that way Grice hopes to get away from the difficulty of either seeing meaning hiding just in the mind of a speaker unobserved or depending on words having meanings where there's no account of how they come to have that significance when it seems to depend on us. It is a commitment of his theory that there be somebody, that there be an audience. So, for example, if I were to say there's a bookcase behind you, use those words to say that, in this particular case, there's an audience, and I'm intending to bring about a change in, in the audience, in, in fact, you. But if Grice's theory is to generalize, there must always be an audience. But there seem to be a, a lot of cases of meaningful language use where there is no audience. And that would seem to suggest that what gives these utterances their meaning is just the words that are used. So I'm thinking of examples like diary writing or speaking to your dog or talking to yourself or soliloquy. Okay, now... Plenty of examples. Plenty right? of examples. I think we have to be careful with the cases. With soliloquy, we know soliloquies because of our appreciation of Shakespearean plays where characters come to the front of the stage and seem to talk to themselves. But of course, a soliloquy is talking to the audience. So we mustn't forget that although in the conventions of the play, the person's talking to themselves, they're really talking to us. 
Writing a diary, another case. I think a lot of people write diaries secretly because they hope they're going to be read by another and perhaps when they're ultimately famous. Have you never talked to yourself? Yes, but I think talking to oneself is a good case. I think when you do talk to yourself out loud, as it were, instead of just thinking, you are, in effect, addressing yourself. You're talking to an audience. You are the listener. So I think it's still an audience-directed piece of speech. Can I ask you about complex intentions, the complexity of the Gricean intentions. When you actually look at the Gricean theory, there are all these clauses, three or four clauses, and people have raised objections to his theory, which has led to even more complexity. That seems ludicrous. When somebody goes into a shop and asks for a jar of coffee, they don't have these complex Gricean intentions. Yes. I mean, even to state the Gricean theory, it seems to be too complex. By uttering a particular expression. Now, I have to intend that you have a particular belief and I have to intend that you recognise my intention and that I intend that you use that recognition in order to come to have the belief. Now, that seems very highfalutin and rather complex and we wonder whether that's really going on in cases of ordinary speech. Christ doesn't think that it has to be going on in every case of speech because we do fall into these more routinized and regular ways of talking, rather conventional ways of speaking. But he does think that they must all be based on and backed up by just such speech acts, um, that we really do try to convey not only the content of what we're saying, but the intention that someone recognizes what we're up to. And I think it's not wrong to say that when I'm talking to you now, I want you not just to be aware of what I'm saying, but I want you to recognize that I'm talking to you and intending to address you with these remarks. And I want you to appreciate that I am doing that in order to understand the significance of our speech and talk now. When we have to deal with potential counterexamples where all the gricing conditions seem to be met, but because of an extra special feature of the case, we have to bring in a further intention on the part of the speaker and each counterexample leads to a repair, leads to another suggested counterexample, postulation of more intentions, then I think it starts to become unnatural and it starts to look as though there's too much going on here. Grice could either talk about people having these intentions unconsciously, operating with them in some unconscious sense, but that's controversial. Or he could say that as long as the basic conditions are met and the conditions that would bring about the counterexamples don't occur, then somebody does succeed in meaning something by uttering a particular expression on an occasion. Are there any other considerations that speak against, not the details of the Gricean theory, but the whole project of reducing linguistic meaning or the meaning of utterances and so forth to the content of psychological states? I think there's a big objection waiting in the wings here, which really might threaten the whole Gricean reductive analysis of linguistic meaning to the beliefs and intentions of the speaker uttering. And I think the danger is just this. If we're going to try and analyse the meaning of a linguistic expression in terms of the content of people's psychological states, their beliefs and intentions, we have to ask ourselves, where do the contents of those states come from? Now, it's quite a common thought that a lot of the contents of our mental states, our beliefs, might come from 
sentences in language and even they might come from the information we acquire from having a language, talking to others, reading books and so on. Now if the contents of our psychological states themselves depend on language or might even be themselves linguistic, then there's no way we can complete the Gricean story of reducing the meaning of linguistic expressions to the contents of our psychological states and our intentions. Why think that the content of our psychological states depends on language? Well, if we don't depend on language to get the contents of our thoughts, and there are very, very many contents, huge and varied numbers of things we can think, then we have to suppose that somehow we're generating the contents of our thoughts from inside the head with no dependence on our dealings with other people and their transmission of thoughts to us. The question is whether there is a satisfactory psychological story about generating the content of thoughts solely from within our own head. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.